people live longer when they feel like they have meaning in their lives that they are they're contributing something they're they they are needed they are counted on for something and so as activity directors of a retirement home i think it would be incumbent on us to create a lot of that meaning Mm -hmm. and and to hold people accountable see when you get a certain age people don't hold you accountable for shit you can say anything you can shit your pants and walk down the hall and we're gonna say anything But when you're in our rehearsal room, mm-hmm. you're expected to be there on time. Mm-hmm. You're expected to bring 110%. Be dressed. To be dressed. You better not be smelling funky because mm. I will tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, go mm-hmm. change. That depends. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Hey, this is Amrita and Andrew. We're on a podcast journey to find our way through freelance life. If you're thinking about taking a leap off the beaten path in any part of your life, our inexpert advice is don't think twice. We have a nationwide epidemic of fireworks. Macy's level, giant, fucking giant fireworks, okay? Giant. And, um, uh, so this is happening not just in, in not just in our neighborhoods, but I posted this thing on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I had people message me from the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I had people in Sunset Park, Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, then There's I had somebody in on. Boston, DC, Boston. San Francisco, and Los Angeles. I'm looking here on the news to see what they're saying. What are they saying? They're saying. Uh, Brooklyn fireworks in Crown Heights set three one one lines ablaze. <laughs> okay, and this is not normal. Fireworks are always the thing around the fourth. Mm-hmm. Then you'll get the the odd firework sound. I mean, you can tell the difference between the gunshots and and, and the fireworks. Barely, but yeah, trained ear. Yeah, <laughs> there is a theory that gun that, that fireworks cover up gunshots. Yes, I think that's very coordinated. If that's true, yeah. Um, so Twitter is burning up with, with the, with the question, what's going on? Like, is this coordinated effort? And it's just really, frankly, like curiosity. I mean, it's not like people are concerned about safety. Although one person's like, I get migraines and this triggers my migraines. And I was like, all right, Trisha, you're that girl I work with (laughs) who I can't stand. And you're that girl who knows that I can't stand you. And then you can't stand that I can't stand you. So then you ask me like what mm-hmm. we can do to have a better relationship yes. and i'm like we can't nothing we can't, we can't. You, could, you could go jump off we a cliff can't. trisha is what you could do i'm Russians. not a fireworks fan the mm-hmm. first time i ever went to see fireworks was in peachtree city georgia mm-hmm. in person okay uh which peachtree city mm-hmm. is a city in is this the golf cart place? this is a golf this is a yeah. golf cart place okay, this is famous it's a it's a, a town in, in right outside of Atlanta that is known for this golf cart culture it has. So you drive the golf cart around the neighborhood. There are bridges and special paths and golf courses, blah, blah, blah. It's mm-hmm. like pretty gross. Yeah. Um, they film stuff there now. Our, yeah, our yeah, writing yeah. it's very close to a lot of Vanessa, filming studios. Who we've interviewed actually yeah. on this yeah. show. Um, Her show was filmed down there. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, my grandmother thought it'd be a great idea uh, to, to to her and her sister took me to the fireworks and I was terrified and and hid and like jumped oh, in like her lap. Oh, like a puppy! Oh, sweet Andrew. So, <laughs> that's my first firework. But my best okay. <laughs> fireworks experience happened in Bennettsville, South Carolina, mm-hmm. um, and I was it's probably in the mid '90s, and my uncle Joe at the time 
came into some cash. He was just like a kind man and like yeah. did cool things. Like, um, and this year and he had a lot of cash and a gleam in his eye, a dream. <laughs> and he loaded my cousins up, me up, my brother, and drove out to the bypass or wherever they had these, you know, big fireworks I, like stores. Like basically anyone who grew up in like a, like. A place where it's legal knows. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're close to the beach, it's like this. It's like fireworks, fireworks, fireworks. Off the side of the highway. Off the side of the highway. And he just tells us to get what we want. So we we just, it was armfuls. Mm-hmm. Of, of, of it. <laughs> and so we go back and wait, you know, patiently for the sun to set. You know, because mm-hmm. as you can, and it was probably in real time. Less than two hours before the sunset. But it felt like an eternity. Children time. Yeah. It was 17 years. <laughs> okay. It was my entire childhood. Yeah. I waited for the sun to set. Yeah. And then uh, we were, it was mayhem. Just the joy of holding like eight <laughs> sparklers mm-hmm. between my fingers. And that was the best July 4th of my life. Oh my god, that's okay. very sweet. Yeah. Um, we used to get sparkle. I, I have strong memories of sparklers at the Bali. I was cautious, so I had I had just like one. Well, I'm a cautious person too, <laughs> and I was still taken with the with the the moment. Just this twelve year old in the middle of the street in in Bensville, South Carolina, with with sparklers, sparklers and Roman candles, just <laughs> celebrating. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is not July 4th, but we're getting some major displays here in New York, and it's been really weird <laughs> under quarantine. Yeah, so this I was saying that we year, that yeah. we um, that we last week hit our 100 days, 100 nights. Um, so we had to listen to Sharon Jones yes. and tribute to our 100 days, 100 nights. R.I.P. I know, oh my God, really, really, truly, yeah. um, that one still gets me when I think about it. <clears throat> um, in terms of celebrity, that deaths. and Anthony Bourdain. Yes, we were talking about this. Sharon why, Jones. Why did Sharon Jones, Sharon Jones and, and Anthony Bourdain why hit us so did, hard? I think like Mitch McConnell's out here and just just ticking, just ticking like as the pickled turtle he is. Right. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, hundred days, hundred nights in quarantine. Yeah. No, but but the last two weeks have been particularly bizarre because of um, of all the protesting that's yeah. been going on, and like and like I would keep thinking and throughout this whole th- quarantine especially during June I've been thinking like oh I really need to be keeping like a daily journal mm-hmm. I've been very bad about it but I don't think that I will be able to look back on this time and adequately remember how intense and like defining a period of time this I know. is it's but, really powerful to see people physically come together and I know that that's you know poses problems because it's on top of this health crisis there was you know the week that we were under both quarantine and uh, curfew when New York City was placed under curfew the the curfew was wild I mean the last time New York was under curfew was like the 40s or something like that 1940 something um, and not for the reasons you'd think. It's not wasn't like directly World War II related or anything. There was some other type of riot. Right. Yeah, there situation. was a riot situation. I know that. Um, in the maybe in the late forties or something like that. Anyway, it, it's been a long but time. But let us mention that we were we were under a curfew because of protesting, not of riots. So ding ding ding. Word 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 word. It's like I think it's pretty shocking. Like what my family sees. In Ohio yeah. versus like what's actually happening in New York. And it's like, first of all, it's largely very safe. 
And second Absolutely. of all, like a, like almost all the ex- escalation that's happening is on the behalf of. I mean, police. it's just like a it. Um, because I've also gone and watched, and no, I don't get in the middle of it just for health reason. Yeah. Like I just not to get too close. I'm this not is that chanting. Like I'm not. Plaza yeah. Or, yeah. And um, there is there is an energy that charges the air when you have fully outfitted police officers mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. like and by that i mean like riot here all of these showing things. up it's, in it, it, absolute, you know, like body do armor. i know what the answer is no i'm not saying that like i'm i, I like woke up and like have the answer to all these problems <laughs> what i am telling you is that there are people who are passionately protesting mm-hmm. and then there is a another side which is aggressively ready for a fight come dressed like they're going to like desert storm like right. it's like it's, it's been crazy it's, and, and to think that you know so you've you've curfewed the city mm-hmm. at 8 p.m no less mm-hmm. not 11 p.m not a reasonable time it's before it, it's even dark there's still sun daylight mm-hmm. you could, the sun has not fully set and you have to be inside your home so you've done that but you haven't created a, a designated place or places that have already organically happened, i.e. Barclay Center, Grand okay. Army Plaza in Brooklyn, just said, like, the you know roads what? are going to be closed. Yeah. What I'm saying is this, like, SWAT teams that show up and stand <laughs> yeah. in a line with their billy clubs against protesters who are, like, not doing screaming anything. into the sky. They're not even <laughs> screaming at the, uh, the police. They're screaming at the, at the change that needs to happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... And then to see the coverage of it that feels so different mm-hmm. we both had this experience of i think of um of witnessing what i think is one of the the gonna be one of the defining events of of the new york protests uh which was this um march for trans lives that black trans women um that that happened at at the brooklyn museum the other mm-hmm. day and um um, and uh, and I, I didn't stay for long, and I was actually on the way over here to, to – we had some writing to do that, that day. Couldn't help but, like, kind of pause a little bit and, and listen and, and just kind of look around at the, the cross-section of people that was there. It was, like, you know, all different types of – all different types of people. Yeah. And it was, like – and it, you know, it was very prioritizing, like, if you're black and you're trans, come to the front. Like, you know, this is – this is – completely safe space for you but you know 15,000 people like that's yeah it's really um beautiful to see like the support for 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 people and and uh then to know that their country is so divided (laughs) wow who who wouldn't be moved by this like display of support Mm -hmm. for people who walk around in their lives feeling so vulnerable Mm -hmm. who are so vulnerable who are so vulnerable and they might look up and end up in a supportive crowd but they might not Mm -hmm. and that's an experience that a lot of people don't have and Mm -hmm. a consideration that they don't have and uh to think like who wouldn't be moved by this and then to realize that there are some people who wouldn't be moved by that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and not to get so angry at that, mm-hmm. but simultaneously get really angry enough to uh, to maybe change things. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Totally. And it's been a weird time. It's been a weird time to be a New Yorker, but like, and you know, to that point, like we don't know to what extent we may be New Yorkers in the future. But like, I mean, we'll get to that in a second, but like, but, but you know, we've been here for over 12 years, Mm -hmm. our 13th year. And like, I do in a weird way, even though I'm like, I hate this. I hate like if there was anything worse than quarantine it's quarantine plus curfew i mean that was like the worst week that yes. was the worst week yes um but Absolutely. but i mean i hate everything that's happening right now yeah but um but i do feel in a weird way glad to be like part of this and this is our city and mm-hmm. it, i do feel like glad to be here but um but yes <laughs> returning to, to our point about about being New Yorkers in the fall, um, we may not be. <laughs> Look, you know, um, you know, it's it's a decision to be made. But what is the place we are right now? If we're just spending our days in these apartments, Stuck. overpriced apartments, and we're not able to enjoy anything yeah, about I the mean, city that are the city, we can't. Yeah, I. Well, more to the point, we can't even work. Like you and I, like can't even our yeah, industry yeah. is that shuttered. Is, yeah. Um, anything that involves till the end of the year. Till the end of the year. At yeah. least. At, at least. least. So right now, most everybody has announced anybody who's doing live events or whatever that, that nothing's happening until twenty twenty one. So. Yeah. Europe. Yeah. I think so. Probably somewhere cheaper. Somewhere where if we're twiddling. Somewhere cheaper. If That's... we're well, if, if the point is if we're twiddling our thumbs anyway, we may as well twiddle our thumbs. Somewhere where there's there's a different adventure. Yeah. Cheap rent, cheap wine, good food, <laughs> cute people. Yes. And that's in no particular order. I mean, for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious to see after everything is said and done, and I'm talking about the, the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Um, how the reshuffle changes America. And I hope it changes it in the way that I want it to change. Well, so I, the thing is, I, I think with that said, like yes, I'm consider I, I I'm considering that, and for people like us who are freelancers, who are creative people, like you know, we have less options in a way. But like, it, but also because of the cheerful nihilism that we were talking about in our sort of last episode, like it there um, there are. It's like there are more options in a way because we're like, you know, there's 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 no there's no logical reason for us to stay here while we can't work here and we yep. can't be making money here and we can't be doing anything here. Yep. So on what? But what I want to say is that like I, I hope that the landscape of America isn't changed in that in that cities are negatively impacted because I really believe strongly in the value of urban living and of like the artistic value um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm. environmental value and all the all the different and like social values of living in a big city um so i don't want that to be lost and i i mean i don't think that like the majority of new york is going to be like fleeing for the the hills the burbs, the burbs. <laughs> it's not even about safety it's not about seeking the safety of like a smaller town or a, a you know like being somewhere where we'll be safer that's like that's not the motivation it's actually just kind of the opposite be inspired by a different 
setting. Outlook and mm-hmm. a different setting and, and maybe a different culture. Yeah. I mean, and I, I've always, and I, I think you too, like, I've always, like, thought, like, maybe I would be the type of person who's going to, like, just be in a foreign city for, like, a little while. Yeah. But I've never really found the, but, I, you know. The I, opportunity. The opportunity, the, right the yeah. reason. Mm-hmm. And, like, like, I do do kind of like like the romanticism of the idea of spending some time in a different city and it could be somewhere else in the united states too but like i want to prepare myself for several things one of them being uh the re-election of donald trump and the (laughs) (laughs) oh god you just like what the possibility that i could be i could find somewhere else to live in this in this world yeah, and you, I am okay, not I exaggerating when I, I say, say that if Donald Trump is reelected, I'm very much considering. I will say, I just want to say that under normal circumstances, when some when people are like, oh my God, if George Bush gets reelected, <laughs> I'm like moving to Canada. I'm like, I really actually kind of hate that. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know what? This is our country. And I we agree. We don't get it under I agree. conditional terms. We get it warts and all. Yeah. And this is, and I'm a patriot and this is like. I hear That's that. That's what it is. And I, I do, so I really do feel that way. However, <laughs> <laughs> what had happened is Donald Trump then got elected. <laughs> and now it's a whole different fucking story. It's line. a whole different story. I mean, it's truly on a different level. When the Supreme Court, who has been stacked against us <laughs> by people like Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. has to save us from deporting 700,000 right. legal immigrants has right. to save us from trans are, people who are, who and are gay people not being fired for being themselves when right. the supreme court has to do that because congress and the presidency can't i think i have a a a, a reason to we're like hanging by a fucking thread my if point our th- if our thread involves brett kavanaugh like that's like a really fucking scary it's thread a, i don't like sad, that thread. it's a sad state like of affairs so, so you know what new york maybe we'll be in europe <laughs> For three months, as long as a, a non-visa visitorship lasts. I know, we have to figure that out. Maybe it'll be longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do have to figure that out. But that's an exciting thing to figure out. Those are good logistics. Oh, it's... I mean, we're great at logistics and, like, extra motivated with those logistics involved. Fantastic. Having, um, you know, port spritzers know. with, like, handsome... Iberian do you know what the rent is in Budapest? It's, like, nothing. It's nothing. We could, we could perform at the Sunview number two. <gasps> Oh my god, we could. <laughs> so it, you know, our our home venue for our um, cabaret burlesque show. <coughs> Excuse me. It's called Sunview. It's in. Uh, it was in Greenpoint at the Sunview, Point, at the Sunview Brooklyn. Diner in in Brooklyn in Greenpoint, and um, our our hookup there. Our buddy moved to um, Hungary. Yeah, I don't know Budapest. Well, yeah. Uh, we, we have an open invitation, apparently. Yeah, so we'll be performing there in October. Great, so, so mark your calendars. Mark your calendars. Our, our faces are on the wall there, actually. Yeah, we are, we're already there. We were donors. Actually, our, our photo is already yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So if our you can buy a, a, a cheap ticket, we'll be in Budapest <laughs> October 15th through the 17th. Wow. Okay, wow. Why not? Yeah, you know? sure. Uh, yeah, we'll be performing <laughs> the best of Roseanne Cash. <gasps> really? Yeah. You promise? Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to the amazing interview we have lined up, we actually wanted to share a voice memo from a listener 
a comment that really has to be heard to be fully appreciated. And by the way, this is amazing. Please send us your comments on voice memo or audio files. Uh, this is from a listener who happens to be my longtime vocal instructor. And uh, this is a, in regards to Andrew's choral vocal warm-ups from the last episode. Amrita, I heard your podcast on Facebook. The reason I wanted to say was you mentioned in your podcast about how, uh, you know, those uh, tongue-twisting things that uh, Andrew was talking about in the beginning. And then you mentioned maybe there's something in South Indian languages as well that is similar to that. And it immediately reminded me of Tirukkural. And, uh, you know, it's. I was actually reading about this and looking into reviewing some of my Tirukkurals that I studied as a school-going girl. And it was so funny that you brought it up and it brought back lovely memories. So I just wanted to give you a few for exa- as, as an example. You know, there's Karka Kasadar Karpavi Katrapin Nirka Adar Kataga. There is also Tuparka Tupaya Tupaki Tuparka Tupaya Tuvimarai. There is also Nandri Marapadan Andrandri Nandralad Andri Marapadan Andri. So if you want to play these to Andrew and also talk about how we also have in our Tamil language <laughs> such kinds of tongue twisters that have wonderful meanings, by the way, uh, as well, that would be awesome. Okay, take care. Bye. And I hope you're singing. Okay, bye. Okay, so first of all, um, we we wanted to have a little disclaimer. So obviously you're our or your friend, our friend, but you're also a big, um, you know, your budget wonk, <laughs> um, personally and professionally. And I did think it was important um, just to just to say for the record that like you're not speaking as any sort of representative of the DC mayor's office or like anything yeah. like that. It's only in your personal capacity. All opinions are your own, etc. Um, yes. But you want to say quickly, like what you what you do? Yeah, well, actually, so, um, like who well, you who are, who you are, and what you do. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Um, my name is Janani Ramachandran Yates, and I am the associate budget director for the Capital Improvements Program um, in the DC office of the mayor, uh, Muriel Bowser. Um, I've been there for about like a year and nine months-ish or so. Um, and I've been doing budget work, you can say maybe like 10, 10 years of, of this stuff. So um, this is like my whole professional career and life. Um, and it's really interesting. I've been in local government now for like um, since, I'm gonna say 2017 or something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, so been up to my ears in police and fire and, um, <laughs> Uh, schools and uh, pretty much everything that like makes the city run from a budget standpoint. So, so the reason we wanted to talk to you is, um, you know, this is like less of a freewheeling conversation than we usually have when we have somebody on the show, but um, like we are, you know, right in the middle of this huge sort of public uh, uprising, I guess you'd say, um, around Black Lives Matter. And, and I think one of the, the big sort of, um, what's co- coalescing is one of like the big um, movements around this is is like 
hashtag defund the police and we're hearing that a lot and we're seeing lots of infographics and lots of people posting things um and you know i think there are there are some varying viewpoints about the the philosophy but like you know from the from the budget perspective of someone who actually has like it's it's you know your job to figure out how how the police department gets funded and how much money it gets um so you you did a big analysis for 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 um, fun for fun (laughs) (laughs) and um this is what people like me think is fun so it's (laughs) i mean it was very informative so it kind of inspired us to want to chat with you a little bit more yeah, and so we really want to talk about the, the NYPD budget that you took a look at. And so before we get into it, I just want to set the stage for what the department is. The New York City Department's the largest department in the U.S. Police We're talking, uh, sorry, police department. We're talking 36 some odd thousand uniformed employees and then an additional 17,800 civilian employees, uh, which makes for like a roughly $6 billion budget, which I will say is primarily funded by the city itself. So not by the federal government or the state, but 92%, 5.2 billion is the city government. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting figure to think about um, everything Mayor de Blasio is saying in the city about um, funding. We'll get into it a little bit more. Jenny, I have some questions for you. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, it's interesting from your, like you were saying, Amrita, the idea of like defund the police and how there's just um, so many ideas right now about like what that means and I think a lot of people say that they support it but they all have different definitions of what that means um, and I think that's totally normal and, and natural at this like stage in this movement um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see how all of these um, local groups and move and sort of like activist groups coalesce start to coalesce around um, different actual specific policy ideas mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it's like, one thing I've learned at this, in my current job, um, is how like every activist community is, is actually, it's a community, like, it's a group of people, it's, a, it's an ecosystem, there's leadership struggles, there's factions, there's internal conflict, like, they don't always agree, they don't all get along, um, you know, you might have housing advocates or, or schools advocates, but like, they, those, those are actually like collections of smaller groups, which may have very different um, priorities and, and people leading them and the personalities of those people um, really change, like really govern, I think, a lot of what actually happens um, in a way. And um, I think it'll be interesting to, to watch all of this for the Black Lives Matter movement and for the defund the police movement, because you already see people like writing you know, op-eds here and there that are like, defund the police actually means abolish the police. And then people are like, no, 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 defund the police means, means like reduce the funding and distribute it elsewhere. And yeah. some people say, um, you know, defund the police means like um, restructuring the, the, what a police department could be or, or like demilitarization. And um, I actually think that like, because this, this policing is, is ultimately such a local issue, all of those things can end up being true depending on the jurisdiction um, and depending on what the local activists the local community and the local citizenry like wants to do like it could be any of those things um but it it really comes back to like you know um the specific like people who are in the movement and their power struggles and they're like sort of like vying for what they think is the right thing to do and then who they can pull along behind them Mm -hmm. for it so Mm -hmm. it'll be really interesting to watch all of this evolve 
I think that's a really good point too, because I know, you know, I think it's good to be reminded that some disagreement within within a particular movement is is natural to that, um, and rather than something that should worry us about, you know, potentially defanging the the movement as a whole. Um, but uh, but to get to get a little bit into your your deep dive into the NYPD, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you organized it really beautifully in a few key takeaways that I think you know were surprising to me, might surprise other people. Um, the the largest of which is that there's an enormous personnel budget, Mo- like the vast, vast, vast majority is all personnel. Yeah, it's true. So um, the NYPD budget in, spe- in particular is for 2021 for their proposal, for Mayor de Blasio's proposal, it's 92.2% personnel. So pretty much everything that is in a poli- in their budget um, and in most police department budgets nationwide is actually pay. It's like people's salaries and benefits. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about cutting, defunding the police, you're actually going to be laying off people. Um, And that is okay. Like that's a, you know, that could be a valid view, but um, the idea that you're going to get a lot of savings from equipment or um, sort of uh, like the demilitarization stuff, a lot of that stuff, police budgets actually get police departments to the extent that they have it get for free, Mm -hmm. most of them, um, or for very reduced costs. Um, I think in D.C., our total equipment budget of all kinds, which includes things like body cameras, bikes, guns, um, you know, Mm -hmm. even like data hardware um, is like a million dollars out of a half a billion dollar budget um, in a year. So like that stuff doesn't actually net you enough to be redistributive in any way. Um, And it also doesn't like... I think a lot of people will be pretty dissatisfied if we just <laughs> uh, with with what they they were able to cut from that but from that budget locally um, purely through through de- de- um, demilitarization or re- or reducing that kind of equipment stuff. So right, I think that's an that's an important point is that the so out of the out of the approaches towards the defund the police movement, the demil- demilitarization aspect uh, doesn't necessarily. Or, or doesn't in fact tend to save uh, a local jurisdiction um, very much money uh, from a budgeting standpoint. Right. Um, and the other big thing about personnel budgets is for most um, most uniformed officers in New York City and in other cities all around the country are union employees. So um, usually you have with unions a very specific what we call like RIF process for firing. Um, and in fact, in the New York City budget, one thing I saw, um, just to set the context for everyone, uh, for, before all of this got going, <laughs> there was a major pandemic, don't know if you heard of it, <laughs> um, which caused a total economic collapse. They needed to find savings citywide, and they presumably had the, the deepest cuts they could probably make um, in with ease uh, at that time. So one of those cuts that they made uh, was 404 civilian positions. Um, but they didn't make any cuts to uniformed officers. Those with those 404 positions doesn't actually didn't actually get them that much money overall um, out of the total six billion dollar budget. Yeah, we're talking 404 out of 17,000 civilian, <laughs> 17,800 civilian jobs. Yeah, yeah. across yeah. all 19 areas areas of the department, which, as we will get to in a moment, covers yeah. quite a lot outside of of what we think of as policing. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and the majority of the cuts that they were able to take were in what we call non-personnel. So the rest of the budget, that like sort of 7.8% of their budget that is that they were spending on non-personnel items, they cut $237 million or 35% of their non-pay. Um, so this is like really stark, um, starkly shows like the power of unionized officers. Mm. So do you do you know how how might a police department with a strong union reduce their uniformed officers? Is this just a matter of waiting for old people to retire? <laughs> yeah, because I mean I think one thing that you pointed out across the board for all the de- you know the detailed analysis that you did was there's a lot of um, there's a lot of roles that that might in other cities or might sensibly be performed by civilians. Um, that are being performed by uniformed officers. And I think the, also the implication there being that there's a cost savings associated with uh, civilian um, salaries as opposed to uniformed ones. So It's true, yeah. So like there, one thing I've noticed looking at the, the NYPD budget is they have so many uh, uniformed officers doing work that I at least doubt needs to be done by uniformed officers. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know... There, I think there's probably legacy reasons for that. Um, I think that um, a lot of these people are have probably been doing this for a long time. But in D.C., at least several years ago, there was um, a major civilianization effort, um, which was to formally switch job classes of, of different positions that didn't need to be done by uniformed officers. So that allowed us to put those uniformed officers back on the street and do have them go do real police work mm-hmm. um, either on the street or like, you know, investigations or whatever it is, something that has to be done by an officer. Um, and this started because of budget pressures, because the civilians were cheaper to the FTEs, but it's also actually was really necessary for us because there was a mass retirement wave in like 2014 to 2017. I think DC is like still going through this actually, um, where people are aging out of the force. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that's I don't think that NYPD at least I haven't see, I didn't see that in their budget um, at that level that they were that there was an attempt to sort of civilianize positions like that and I think that that's something that really could be done it's like a good cost savings thing it's a good government thing. Um, so and, you're saying the approach uh, would be to to um, as jobs are are vacated and when they're going to be refilled for those to be cl- reclassed from uniform to, to, yeah, to civilian. Okay, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's things like forensic text or um, people that, for instance, like the 911 call center, which is inside the NYPD budget, Mm -hmm. um, call takers do not need to be officers. Mm -hmm. Um, There's very few people in that kind of office that actually need to be officers. It's not really police work. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a huge amount of people in like administration and sort of oversight roles that don't really need to be officers. Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a really interesting. I think that's an interesting angle as a civilianization. I, I that's a new term for me. So, um, or or I just I, I like that as a as sort of a, a focus for like how do we how do we propose advocate for change? And I just also want to add as a sidebar to this, um, you 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 did make a note about how the um, although it is a very small percentage of the buz- budget that it's worth noting in terms of civilianization that the internal like wrongdoings are all in investigated by police union members and um that would be a good place to advocate for civilians to be replacing some of those jobs as well 
Yeah, so they have an internal affairs office, which is like an internal corruption investigative branch, um, which is budget-wise, it's a pretty small percent of the budget. It's like $72 million total, 1.3% of the budget. But like, they're... This office has 596 uniformed officers and 29 civilians, which seems a little crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I was really pretty, pretty surprised that there were so many uniformed officers in the internal affairs office here. In, within, it's totally normal that there should be an internal function as well to investigate um, issues or like cases of misconduct or or, um, you know, anything like, just even, like, process bettering your your internal processes and policies and guidance and all of that. But it did seem very surprising to me that this was almost entirely uniformed officers looking at themselves again. Yes. Um, (laughs) Who who are in the union, presumably. Right. Um, Just from a management perspective, it's like, you're not actually getting that much value out of, you know, 600 people looking at themselves over right. and over again right. and not really right. like spending, making change. Just looking through your analysis here and, um, you know, we've, so we've talked about the, the number of uniformed officers doing what civilian work civilians might do. It's also interesting in your analysis of, of this and you, we talked about it briefly with 911 that the New York City Police Department owns things that, um, for example, in D.C., uh, the p- police department doesn't own, and you, nine one one is an example. But are there some other places you see that the police department doing work that doesn't always sit inside the department? So their total administration budget, which is like the big um, legal, EEO operations, labor relations, HR, all that kind of stuff, um, is just a huge part of the. Um, of the budget overall. Um, so between that and their office called chief of department, which is like their kind of more strategy focused overhead. Um, those two, those two functional areas are 28% of the overall NYPD budget. Um, and that, if you think about like, if you were spending 28% on, on like basically your overhead, your, your admin, Mm. um, that's just like really crazy to me, uh, given how top heavy or how like pay focused the budget is in general, uh, to have it be that top top heavy. Okay, so when when you say top heavy, you mean top heavy from the perspective of the the administrative overhead being so large, right? Yeah, and so that could be that could be high salaried people uh, individuals, but it could also be just like a lot of people mm-hmm. <laughs> doing that. Um, that's, you know, two ways to get to a big number. What, what would you say, um, what, like if you were looking at a, bu- a city police budget, what would you think of as being a more reasonable percentage for overhead than 28%? That's a good question. I actually don't know off the top of my head what it is in D.C., but I think, so, you know, I think some people might say like, oh, but this is a huge um, agency. There's like tens of thousands of people who work here. Like we need a lot of, of overhead for that. Um but I think that there's like ways to cut that down. I, I mean, I myself would be looking at something closer to like 10 or 15 percent on average. Probably. Oh, wow. OK, so that's um, significant. That's significant. yeah, it seems it seemed very significant to me because mm-hmm. you consider it like that's 28 percent. The same percentage of the budget, like 28 percent again, is uh, the patrol off patrol budget, basically. So that is like all the beat cops cost the same amount. Wow. As mm-hmm. and that's everybody you know that's 18,000 officers 
uh, 1700s billions. Like all five boroughs. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely puts it in a different, into perspective of, <laughs> of size, for sure. Well, I don't yeah. know how applicable it is, but, um, but in, in grant submissions for government grants even, actually particularly government grants um, for programs, they won't allow for an overhead greater than 20% and encourage an overhead for any organization applying for a grant to be 15%. Oh, okay. So it's just... From, maybe from having written a bunch of, a of grants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the government would prefer to see 15% overhead for, a, for an organization. Right. So I'm just looking back up through here, and I see that there's um, uh, a communications uh, program function area that... Um, I think could use for some explaining. Um. Yeah, because I, I think also, you know, some of the things that we've been seeing advocated for, like on social media or whatever, is that like, oh, the police have a huge PR budget. The police have a huge, you know, outreach department. They have whatever this and that. So, yeah, if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so I've heard, I've seen these memes flying around. I, ha- I used to live in New York. I have a lot of friends who um have been sharing things on social media and and like the infographics and stuff like that and you know one of the sort of hot takes that you always see that i've been seeing is people saying like nypd has 137 million dollars for communications for like their own pr um but unfortunately when you actually read the budget book that is actually their 911 call center for the city um so (laughs) (laughs) it's not actually a pr office it's you know um it's 2.4% of the overall budget with, like, hundreds, I don't remember now off the top of my head, but hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who work in there taking calls as dispatchers. Um, and so it's not necessarily a function that needs to be uh, uniformed officers. Like, I noticed that there were 90 uniformed officers, but probably none of them need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's also not as easy to cut as you would think. I think most people in this country would agree that you need some kind of 911 function. Right, right. Um, whether or not that belongs in the police department is a different question. Yeah, no, I think I think that's just like a, a, a good thing to know that it's not like, it's not that they're, you know, launching a PR, like a branding campaign or something with that money. It's, it's really, it, that is sort of an essential service. Whether or not it should live within the police department budget, as we mentioned before, is another question. But, um, but I think, again, also from a perspective that uh, that's a two percent, between two and three percent of the um, of the overalls is also a good perspective. Yeah, and they also have like a community affairs office, which is um, just kind of all the things that you think of as being that like feel good outreach, so mm-hmm. fostering p- positive police and community relations, and sort of trying, I guess. Well, I mean, this was an area that I initially thought with all the, with all the sort of information again on social media that's sort of flying around that's like, oh yes, this makes so much sense. Why are the police doing like, you know, homelessness outreach and youth outreach and all this sort of like, you know, positive branding and things like that. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but. No, no, that's okay. That's good. Um, And like all these sort of like borough community events and all that, but like, it's like whether or not you think that's a waste of time, it actually, they're not actually spending very much money on it. So they spend like $14.5 million on that toll department, um, which is 0.3% of the 0.3%. overall. 0.3%. Like, <laughs> we're not going to gain that much back. But I mean, I think it's the argument is sound for cutting it, but it's like actually, again, from a money redistribution um, point of view, like not really that significant. Well, I think this right. is for me, this is the first department that's like, it's, I've, 
question it, it seems very important in the and and not really maybe it's not functioning well because where else in the where else in this budget is there a place for um communication between a neighborhood and its police department i'm not saying it's used well i'm not saying the community affairs budget or or program as it's designed now is used well but um i just see it and think um hmm. i think well is is this a place where where more resources and better strategy and a better program is designed so that you understand what your community is and please i don't know i don't know well that's interesting i mean so because like for me i'm like oh this is obvious get that out of there for you you're like <laughs> well maybe we need more money in there so that we're actually communicating better with the police department it seems to me the better. more money you take away from community uh, community affairs the less you know the community if it's yeah functioning the way it should and i'm not saying i don't know how it functions right. mm. and actually like one thing that's in there i think um there was a line about it providing support personnel during significant community incidents and I think what that is uh, I think that's what there's a little bit of reading between the lines there but as a budget person I think that that's actually a code for like trauma-informed victim counseling and sort Mm. of connecting people who maybe were witnessed or um, or had a family member uh, like shot in front of them and I think that like trauma-informed care from a sort of policy standpoint is probably one of the most important things that we can do um, as a government to like break the cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in, um, I've read some statistics in DC recently about how, you know, it's just a really crazy percentage of kids in, um, DC public schools who have been a personal, have personally known somebody who was a victim of gun violence, seen a shooting, um, you know, experienced a major trauma that way. I think we, focus a lot in this country on like suburban mass shootings mm-hmm. and the and the level of care afforded to um the students from parkland or the students from columbine and um and we really respect the that that traumatic event dramatically changes the course of all of those kids lives um and then you think about that happening on a everyday scale mm-hmm. like every day is is columbine every day is is parkland in a lot of these kids neighborhoods um it's that's that to me that's like a generational trauma and um it's a lot to expect kids to um just sort of like get over that without services you know intervention and services yeah, yeah for sure for sure and again i think the question of you know that whether that needs to live in the the police department budget, I think is is a, is different. But yeah, I, could, right. I definitely couldn't agree more with that. I mean, I, th- I but I do think that, um, you know, in the case of New York, that I could certainly see that being more of a um, advocating for more resources to be channeled towards like uh, mental health, human services type of um, department, such as it exists. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think now that this like really shows, I think as we're going through this, you know, you see how hard it is to cut budget. Like you're like, well, what can we cut? Like we're we're trying to defund the police here. Which what part of the right? And this is exactly this is exactly what what I think. Um, you know, I think it's so valuable to talk to somebody who actually does budgets because it it is. It's like, well, okay, great, we can we can 
at this point, I think mostly many people can agree that yes, we do need some resource reallocation, and then and then we're looking at it, the actual you know sitting down to look at the actual numbers, and it's like, well, where does it come from? <laughs> How is this going to happen? And then I mean, this is a good example if we look at the Criminal Justice Bureau being another department. You know, uh, this is the police department budget, which is separate from from a prison system. So in this this particular area, we're talking about correctional officers, um, police who transport prisoners to court dates. Now we're talking about something that is, has to respond to the prison industrial complex. I mean, you can't not have you know, correctional officers doing their job. Um, right. But yet you're yeah, not so, in control of incarcerate the right. justice system completely. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I guess where we've landed overall in this question of like, where the hell do we <laughs> get money out of the ring money out of this? I mean, I think the overhead, the civilianization, mm-hmm. um, those are kind of like two like really significant ones that might actually make a real dent. Um, and, you know, Andrew raised an interesting question right before we got on this call about, about like so we're talking about you know basically reducing pay i mean as you said any amount of reform to this budget is going to involve laying people off and um if it's going to involve laying people off and then rehiring civilians it means potentially that these people are getting paid less like is there some is do you view there as being any sort of like and help, help me phrase this better if I, you can, Andrew. But like, like a like a sort of labor like issue around this that it's like, oh, are we are we just sort of like union busting to like try to get cheaper yeah. <laughs> cheaper people so that's in that we can underpay? That will be really interesting, I think, to watch as this movement continues to evolve. Most people who uh, I would say subscribe to the Black Lives Matter slash defund the police slash uh, just like general criminal justice reform. Um, side of things right now in this movement are Democrats, um, liberals, Mm -hmm. um, and those also tend to be aligned with people who support labor, organized labor generally, um, and public unions. And so I think there's like a little bit of strange bedfellows um, here that will ultimately become apparent as people start to focus on the pay budget for for these departments. Scott Walker in Wisconsin famously tried to break public unions. There was like a big battle over that. This has happened a lot in the Midwest. It's sort of puts, it's going to put a lot of um, Democratic politicians in a place that they will need to figure out between multiple um, sort of allegiances where they want to land. Um, I don't think it's that necessarily it can't be done. I mean, from a like good governance standpoint, good government, um, you should be like hiring. People should be getting paid for what they are, the work that they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. and so like if it doesn't need to be done by an officer, it shouldn't be done by an officer. Um, just sort of as a general like principle, these are ultimately taxpayer dollars. We don't want to waste them. You know, we want to be like using them judiciously as much as possible. Really, it's like we're trying to protect the uh the taxpayer like the local taxpayer these are your, this is your money we're putting democratic politicians in a position to potentially be advocating against organized labor unions and i mean we've seen already the huge discomfort you know what of you know how much how de blasio's reception has been from the police unions um, yeah you know it's interesting i um i i think 
I feel pretty strongly in as like from a policy perspective that cutting pay is a counterproductive here. Um, what we actually meaning meaning if you just were going to take an across the board cut and say like okay we're just going to cut the salaries of all the police officers. Mm. Um, I just don't think that's really productive towards getting you what you want because you want to be hiring the best people you can and to do that costs money. Like you have to cut you have to pay. Um, for good people. Yeah. Well, and well, I know so, you had mentioned that DC also has um, like a, a college degree requirements and things like that for officers um, yeah. in an effort to try to try to make um, police work be competitive uh, with other sort of public service almost. Like if you want a service oriented mm-hmm. type of career, that that would be a valid um, route for you, uh, both in terms of like prestige and pay. There is really strong evidence that reduced um, use of force rates are much lower among departments that have some level of college required, um, mm-hmm. whether that's a, a two-year or four-year degree. Um, and the more training uh, and sort of educational standards and like strong performance standards um, that exist in the department. One of one of the sort of arguments here is is that like if the only thing you have to cut is salaries. And, and pay and you want to reduce um, you know how much are police officers paid you may end up with officers that you don't actually want to be officers mm-hmm. like you want the appeal of this job to be that you get to do good work that's interesting and that you are getting fairly compensated for it you don't want the appeal of this job to be I get a gun yeah, right. <laughs> right right I, I want to shoot something yeah. <laughs> right? yeah like you know you want this to be a profession that people choose and they have other options that they could have gone into, but they chose to do this. Mm -hmm. Just like we always say about teaching, you know, you want people to be, to choose teaching because it's um, fairly compensated, that they find it rewarding, they're well-educated, they're good teachers. Like those are the people you want to be your teachers. The same way, like those are the kinds of people you want to be your cops, the people who like are, are service oriented, so. Right. And to give a little context, in the in New York City Police Department, the average police officer, which is the of all the ranks, it's where you begin, the average pay is ninety thousand, uh, versus an average civilian pay in the in the police department of fifty five thousand. So when we talk about uniform to civilian swap off, you're talking about thirty five thousand dollars plus whatever, you know, benefits on top of that. Yeah, the benefits will really kill you on a lot of a lot of um, between. That's to me. That's one of the biggest differences between uniformed and civilian. Is you're looking at incredibly rich pensions and early retirement for um, police officers, typically in most major cities. Um, and so, it's just uh, you want that person to be a good person who is doing work that's of the level that you would demand for that kind of compensation. Right. So I have kind of a big question for you. <laughs> in thinking about the defund the police, uh, just, you know, uh, how, as a budget person who clearly knows a lot about this, what do you think is the wisest way forward? Um, and you, you know, answer that as you feel. But what I mean is that we've, you know, as, as we've talked about here, it's just taking away money what am I trying to say? Taking away money it, it's, it's not, m- m- might not solve the problem. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah. something needs to change. <clears throat> I think um, def- I definitely agree that something needs to change. I think a lot of people are only just starting to think through how hard it is to change. Um, and I do think that change is going to look different in every city, in every jurisdiction, in every department. I think in some places, the total abolish the police and start over is actually going to be um, a, a route that they go because they can't get their unions to come to the table on some of these, on some of the reform issues. Mm-hmm. And that may be the appropriate way that that jurisdiction, that community wants to move forward. Creating um, independent review, that's another thing. That's one one way that you could, you could form a, a department is like to have that kind of independent office where people can report with complaints to change the disciplinary process, to change um, the sort of uh, oversight of the department. Um, that could be a, those, those could be sort of sufficient enough if there's enough will, if there's like the political will and um, and a union and a, and a department that is like willing to move forward and able to move forward through that. Um, and then there are some places where you're just gonna restructure the whole, um, the whole budget and the whole department. You know, you're mm-hmm. gonna remove certain things that police maybe don't necessarily need to be doing and that's what feels right for that community. Um, so I think it's going to look really different in different places, and I think that's normal and that's okay. And defund the police can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, um, and it will probably end up meaning a lot. It will end up creating a lot of different um, scenarios in different um, parts of the country. Like these are ultimately very, very hyperlocal problems um, that people will have to address in their own way, in a way that makes sense. You know, I just don't know, like, for instance, I'm just, I'm just kind of rambling a little bit, but like in some parts of this country, if your average number of people who have a college degree is very low, it may not be reasonable to require a college degree to be an officer. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have to get at that training in other ways. Um, right. Yeah, just, yeah. It's definitely not like a one size fits all. This is, I mean, this is not rambling at all. This is very, very, very interesting. And um, I think like really just points out that like that it's it's actually you know it may seem on the surface to be a victory to have something passed like nationwide that this is the you know this is the sort of rule but but you know because there's just so much texture to the you know urban versus suburban landscape the um just sort of the function of police in different communities it really has to be so much at the um hyper local hyper local uh level which is like like you know I'm, I'm my one of my things about after I finally finally switched my my voter registration to New York is like really beating <laughs> the drum on local elections but I think that that what you're saying really points back to that that like people really have to start caring like if you're if you're in you know if you're into to defund the police or you know whatever types of reform that you were advocating for you have to mm-hmm. get really interested in like who's making the hyper local decisions yeah, absolutely. And and like what I was saying about sort of the the, commun- the activist community are there you I think nationally we are in a unique moment where 
we have everybody's attention now and or like sort of the black lives matter movement um the defund the police movement the the like general police criminal justice reform movement has okay we're all listening now let's find out like what do you want right. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people who are claiming to know what these you know thousands and thousands of people protesting want but um, they don't necessarily speak for everybody who's been on the streets or everybody who's been outraged. Um, and so that's something that you always have to think through. And if you have ideas about like what you want in your local community and what you want to see, like I encourage everyone to be active and speak up. So we're in a moment where like this is pushed to elevate, like black activists should be able to speak first on all these issues. Like, I think that's a totally worthy and, um, makes a lot of sense right now. Um, and it's sort of idea of like white people need to amplify the voices of, you know, the quote unquote people who have been doing this work for a long time. Um, and that's good and true. But those people who have been doing this work are also not a monolith. There are many different kinds of activists who want, who mean very different things when they say defund the police. Um, and so I think ultimately we all have a, we can't, none, no one, none of us can like abdicate our responsibility for for um, sort of voicing our opinions in our communities and and like saying what we want and what really we think makes sense and it like creates the the world that we want to live in. Yeah, and I think that's an amazing takeaway and and sort of a benefit of this being uh, in a lot of ways sort of a leaderless quote unquote leaderless movement uh, thus far, and that's actually a benefit rather than a liability um, for you know, us as individuals who may have different viewpoints on how, how we achieve the reform that we're looking for. Well, we had a town hall um, on my team. I work in the, my broader office, which is, you know, maybe about 60 people or so, is the office of the city administrator here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a, like kind of a staff town hall to talk about COVID and Black Lives Matter and just sort of like everything that's been going on which I think is a great thing that I hope every workplace is doing. But one of the questions that I had asked at this at this um, town hall was about how to, you know, be supportive of this movement and how, ch- but also how challenging it is with to kn- knowing how hard a lot of these things are to do. Like, how can we be useful? Um, and he really encouraged us to share our knowledge with the world and mm-hmm. share our knowledge with our community and our friends and our family. And even though social media is hard and annoying um, to engage <laughs> yeah, with people on these issues, mm-hmm. um, to like put yourself out there and like, we will get a better society. We will get a better product if we all contribute what we have, what we know and what we feel and what we, um, have available to us in our personal in well our personal you have definitely done that so that's really why i really wanted to do this with you guys so yeah no i thank you so much thank you we love you and uh we'll hopefully get to um digitally meet your your new daughter soon yep yeah you can subscribe to us anywhere you listen to podcasts and find us at vjandstevens.com That's V-I-J-A-Y and Stevens with a P-H. We're working on some scripts and some fun new live projects. You can find us at VJ and Stevens on Instagram, and our assistant Susan now tweets at Memos from Susan. Susan.